This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Ike Ahmed. Dr. Ahmed probably doesn't need an introduction since many of you have heard him speak and or follow him on social media. Dr. Ahmed is a glaucoma and complex anterior segment surgeon based out of Toronto, and we are very lucky to have him on the Pupil Pod today. Dr. Ahmed, thank you again for joining me. Hey, thanks so much, Sila. It's great to be here. Um, looking forward to this. Congratulations on putting this together. I think it's a great opportunity and looking forward to this. Me too. So let's get right into it. You are taking care of a 68-year-old man with a history of primary open-angle glaucoma who is on maximum medical therapy and now has progression of his visual field defects and glaucomatous optic neuropathy. Dr. Ahmed, when do you decide to move forward with incisional surgery in patients such as this? Yeah, you know, this question has become more complicated with the uh, advent of newer uh, procedures that we have available, including MIGs and less invasive surgery. But in general, it's for patients that are either progressing, patients who are on maximally tolerated medical therapy who are above their target, and typically reserved more for patients who have more moderate to severe disease, where really the window to preserve vision is shortened. And so those are the primary indications. Of course, angle closure is a little bit of a different boat. Angle closure, we typically look to intervening earlier just because it's such an anatomical problem. But those are generally some of the indications. And I will add one more thing is when a patient's going to cataract surgery in the past, you know, that was a primary focus. But now with MIGS, we often combine uh, cataract and glaucoma surgery, even if the patient's not progressing or has elevated pressure, but more so to reduce the medication load. Yeah, I've been starting to see more combo surgeries. Obviously, I'm a second year, so just starting to see those surgeries. And it's really incredible that we're able to do those surgeries at the same time and that we are having some good results. What are the relative contraindications to trabeculectomy and the factors that increase the risk of bleb failure in these patients? Yeah, I mean, th this is always a challenge we're dealing and fighting with wound healing. And so there are eyes that have a higher risk of scarring. Uh, certainly patients who've had previous surgery already that's failed, people who have previous conjunctival surgery or trauma. There are certain conditions, of course, like neovascular glaucoma, uveitis, some of the secondary proliferative glaucomas that have a higher risk for failure, like ice syndrome would be one. And then, of course, there are certain racial and other demographic factors, uh, patients who are non-Caucasian, have a higher risk factor for failure and people who have bad ocular surface and, and the sort. So anything that really is going to affect conjunctival healing 
uh, would be patients who would have a higher risk for failure in any bleb surgery, trabeculectomy, or any form of diversion of aqueous in the subconjunctival space. Yeah, I do remember on my glaucoma rotations, the attendings were so adamant about taking care of the conjunctiva and making sure that the patient has a healthy conj. One of the things that we think about a lot as residents and obviously as a glaucoma surgeon you think about is the difference between limbus-based and fornix-based approaches for TRABs. Can you walk us through that? Because I think that this is a little bit confusing for the residents. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting enough that, you know, in the past, this was more of a debate. I will say nowadays, uh, we have really all generally moved toward fornix-based surgery, although there are some surgeons that still prefer limbus-based. And the best way to think about it, limbus-based is basically that the uh, base of the flap is at the limbus, and the fornix-based, the base of the flap is in the fornix. So for limbus-based flap, of course, one has to make an incision fairly posteriorly to the limbus, 10 millimeters back, for example, and technically the access can be more challenging. The advantages, however, though, that things like concisional leakage and dehiscences are less common. But the disadvantages, though, now you have this posterior limiting scar. And we're all trying to get this diffuse posterior bleb forming into the, into the quadrant. And that uh, posterior scar can limit that. It can lead to more localized bleb. Fornix-based flaps are technically easier. We're just cutting at the limbus, doing a localized pritomy. And the flap is raised. And we have access to sclera. We don't have to worry about moving the conj away from our, from our incision site. So technically, it's an advantage, and we reduce the need to, or the concern about having a scar posteriorly that could basically block flow posteriorly. The disadvantages are at the limbus is that you may have more a higher chance of having a, an early bleb leak. And so closure is very important, and we all have developed ways to do that. It's always important to remember that with any bleb, of course, you know we try to position the bleb in the superior quadrants. Uh, we avoid inferior blebs for risk of endophthalmitis. And I think... Uh, really, uh, the application of mitomycin C uh, is probably even more important in terms of obtaining a nice, ideal, diffuse, non-cystic bleb. And that is a great segue into our discussion on antifibrotic agents, but I just wanted to stop for one second because something that you said just really made it click for me because I was getting confused, and I know that a lot of my colleagues were getting confused about fornix versus limbus-based because you always think about things in terms of where the incision is, but when you put it as where the base is, that actually makes a lot more sense. So you think of the base as at the fornix and the base as at the limbus, and that helps you to figure out which one is which. Because for me, it was always like, oh, limbus is opposite. You don't cut at the limbus, you cut away from the limbus. So I think that was a really great way for me, at least, to understand it. Exactly. Um, but getting into the antifibrotic agents, how do you use those in your practice? Yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays with glaucoma surgery, you wouldn't imagine doing filtering surgery without antifibrotics, antimetabolites, because the issues around wound healing are enormous. And this is, is increased with the advent of medications, because medications themselves can cause conjunctival toxicity, even without other known risk factors. So, I mean, we use it all the time. And you know, there are two options that we typically use in glaucoma, 5-fluorouracil and mitomycin C. I'm sure people have heard these, and they're using other procedures as well around the eye and also outside the eye as well. The main difference is this 5-FU is a weaker agent. It's a pyrimidine analog that selectively uh, affects uh, the active phase of the cell cycle. So basically, it, it inhibits the proliferative phase of uh, fibroblast uh, proliferation and migration. And so um, you know, it works specifically only on a certain part of the cell cycle. While mitomycin C is a very strong alkylating agent uh, and cross-links DNA within cells, and it really, you know, is independent of the active phase of the cell cycle. And so literally, it really just kind of nukes the cell, in other words. 
So it's much more powerful. In fact, in current doses we use for the eye, you know, mitomycin is about 100 times as potent as 5-FU. Um, and for that reason, you know, we did typically use it intraoperatively. Uh, 5-FU is used less intraoperatively, and we typically use this postoperatively when we feel the bleb is maybe at risk for failure because of, of thickening or vascularity. Now, when we use them intraoperatively, mitomycin or 5-FU is typically applied either by sponge or pledgets, uh, ideally uh, like a Marisol sponge that's non-fragmenting, or can be injected. And we've seen a movement in the last decade or so, including here, that we've typically gone to injections because we have a controlled dose and the concerns around injections were relatively unfounded in terms of complications. And so I do like to do this by an injection, although certainly sponges have been the norm traditionally. And typically, if you're using a sponge, you're doing it for a certain amount of time, and uh, most would do a, some irrigation after the application. Uh, when we're doing a postoperatively, of course, we typically do a transconjunctival injection into the area of the bleb, and that's something that we typically use with 5-FU. And one last thing is that we do use them for needling procedures, and later on, if we have to do a needling procedure, then the anti-metabolites are useful. I typically use mitomycin C. I want to get a, a strong uh, you know, uh, effect, but some people use 5-FU, and you know, 5-FU typically is a standard dose, typically 50 milligrams per cc at whatever volume you put in. Mitomycin C, I should have mentioned earlier, we do vary the concentrations, uh, you know, uh, 0.2, 0.4, 0.5% are commonly used, and we may vary the amount of time the sponge is used. So you can imagine there's lots of moving parts in here, and, and very much it's a personal preference. And of course, if there's a higher risk for failure, we may use a higher concentration or higher application time. Great. That was actually extremely helpful. So um, you you kind of touched on a couple of these complications already when you were talking about needling and post-op bleb failure, but what are some complications of TRABS? Well, there's a long list, uh, and that's one of the reasons that's really you know prompted us to try to do better from TRABS. But basically, we can think about early things, uh, things like hyphema, wound leak, uh, you know, and and of course uh, issues around uh, healing. Um, things we worry about anatomically are hypotony and shallow chambers, which can lead to effusions and, and choroidals, which is which is a concern, of course, and also malignant glaucoma that can occur. Um, so those are some of the things we worry about early on. Um, later on, probably the biggest things we worry about beyond failure is the risk of hypotony and, and bleb leaks and, and also endothelitis related to that as well, and chronic hypotony. So those are some of the concerns. You know, studies have also shown that, um, you know, trabeculectomy with application of mitomycin C and anti-metabolites do increase the risk of cataract. Back surgery is often required in patients who are phakic. So, you know, those are some of, those are some of the, the big ones that to think about. Uh, of course, there's smaller ones like foreign body sensation, ptosis, diplopia, uh, you know, ocular surface issues that can be chronic and irritating as well. And in which patients would you actually think about considering a tube shunt rather than a trabeculectomy? So, yeah, Sheila, we've got more, more data on this from the TBT and PTV trials, which are both trials comparing TRAB versus TUBE, either in refractory glaucoma, meaning patients who have previous surgery, or patients who have not had previous surgery as a primary therapy. And, and basically, you know, traditionally, as expected, we typically look at uh, places where tubes, uh, where TRABs may fail. So we mentioned earlier, neovascular glaucoma, uveitis, eye syndrome, things like that. Certainly patients who have bad conjunctiva or patients who have failed previous uh, filtering surgery will be candidates. Um, and, uh, you know, patients also where maybe you're worried about an anterior bleb, like a contact lens user, would be a concern. Uh, many people also look at aphakia, uh, or patients who've had previous multiple surgeries because the eye is, of course, uh, you know, had a lot of surgery and more risk for scarring. And in fact, the TVT trial did show that in the eyes with previous intraocular surgery and filtering surgery, 
the uh, Bearvelt implant had a higher success rate over five years than trabeculectomy. Even though early on, trabeculectomy had lower pressures um, and medication used, you know, hypotony and other risk factors uh, led to more failures with TRABs. Now, however, for primary procedures, primary procedures that aren't high risk or didn't haven't had previous surgery, you know, trabeculectomy is still king. And so uh, there's not necessarily a lot of reason to move to uh, tubes as first line for most cases, but uh, certainly as a second line or refractory line, I think tubes have become uh, more common. Since we have to be a little more cautious with tubes, are there any contraindications to tube shunts? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, tubes have some unique complications and they include diplopia, erosions, and corneal endothelial dysfunction. Um, you know, so patients who really, really have bad conjunctiva, even, you know, patients uh, who would not do traps on, we got to be careful because if the conjunctiva is in poor shape, we may want to avoid that quadrant because, you know, tubes can erode. Um, you know, patients who have had, you know, again, major buckling surgery or, or, or sponges placed posteriorly where we can't put a tube in that quadrant. And then, of course, uh, patients who have, for example, uh, a very, very shallow chamber where you can't put the tube in and you, and you, and you maybe you haven't removed the lens, uh, or uh, patients who have corneal endothelial dysfunction and evidence of borderline function where we worry about the presence of a tube may tip the patient over. Although I do say, again, in those cases, sometimes we still have to bite the bullet. And as I often bug my cornea colleagues, I, I always say that the cornea and the film can be replaced, but the nerve and RGCs can't. And so in those situations, we still sometimes have to go to a tube. I love that. I think that every service always thinks that their their specialty is king. And everyone makes a good argument. As a resident, you're like, yeah, of course, you can't replace the optic nerve. What would you do without it? And then retina colleagues say the same about the retina. Um, what are the complications of tube shunts and how do we prevent or manage some of those complications that you would see in your office? Sure. I mean, so just to go through some of them, I mean, you know, most of the trap complications can also happen with tubes. So hypotony, shallow chambers, choroidals, uh, you know, overfiltration, failure, those can all, all occur. There are certain things that are, that are perhaps more or somewhat unique to tubes. They include, for example, erosions that can happen over the plate or over the actual tube. In those cases, we want to make sure that, of course, we properly cover the tube typically with graft material uh, and close conjunctiva adequately. If there was uh, an erosion, then we would typically look to, uh, you know, cover the tube again with another graft material. Typically, I use sclera personally or pericardium and also close with good conjunctiva with perhaps a rotational, uh, rotational flap. Uh, you know, tubes can get blocked. They can get blocked by blood, pigment, fiber, and things like that. And that may require um, an irrigation or the injection of TPA. The tube is embedded in the iris. It needs to be uh, kept away. And of course, maintaining a bevel up position and away from the iris is important. Um, and then, you know, for diplopia and things like that, those are sometimes hard to predict and hard to avoid. But, you know, in, in, in scenarios where it's a prob problem, we, we often have to go to more complex surgery to resolve, resolve the diplopia. As far as uh, corneal issues, it's important to keep that tube away from the cornea. I like to place it quite deep into the anterior chamber. If the patient's pseudophagic, we often put them in the posterior chamber in the space between the lens and the iris and the sulcus to keep it away from the cornea. So those are some of the, some of the unique considerations for tube shunts and how we can prevent or manage them. Okay, thank you. Now, I think that this gets us to one of our final topics, which is what I think to be the most exciting thing about glaucoma surgery, and that is all of the new minimally invasive techniques. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how these techniques work in general? 
Yeah, I mean, this is super exciting and it's changed our field. I mean, we have become, you know, much more interventional and in, in treating patients earlier because we realize the problems around drops and compliance and fluctuation. And so, you know, we can talk about MIGs and MIGs uh, are more physiologic procedures directed toward the canal and the conventional outflow or supracortical space. And that's kind of what I call MIGs. People often talk about some of the newer bleb surgeries, like, you know, for example, some of the micro shunts and micro stents as MIGs. I try to put that under sort of a category of subconscious surgery or subconscious MIGs, or lately I've been calling it MIBS, minimally invasive bleb surgery. It doesn't have the same ring as MIGs, but kind of give the idea about the differentiation. Now, in terms of MIGs, basically, you know, that's typically uh, patients who are looking more for modest targets into the mid-teens, more as patients who are, you know, uh, an alternative to medications. So these would be, uh, example, early to mild, or early mild to moderate glaucoma, typically open-angle glaucoma, often combined with cataract surgery because we're already in the eye. Let's get patients on less medications and have a better ocular surface as well. Uh, and, and that's kind of the category, although we do use standalone MIGs as well. In, uh, in patients, for example, who, again, are typically high pressures but are not severe glaucoma that can uh, be satisfied with uh, a more mid-teen target. And then we use some of the, less, some of the minimally invasive bleb surgical techniques um, as an alternative to trabeculectomy or even using it earlier in trabeculectomy because the control of flow, hypotony prevention, and more posterior flow, um, uh, and, and again, doing it with a small form factor compared to tubes, are beneficial. I kind of look at those procedures as kind of the best between traps and tubes. They've got the safety of, of tubes in many ways, but with the efficacy of a trab. And that's kind of where we're going with microstents and microstents. So that's, that's a lot to talk about, but that's briefly kind of what, um, what, we, what we think about. So really in my practice, nowadays, trabeculectomy is, is less commonly performed. We do combination cataract MIGs a lot, and we do a lot of standalone uh, minimally of bleb surgery a lot uh, before we move on to trabs and tubes. Great. Thank you so much. That was a really comprehensive summary. So just to summarize for our listeners, trabeculectomy is reserved for moderate to severe open angle and angle closure glaucoma that is refractory to medical or laser management. The limbus-based approach is actually closer to the fornix, is technically easier, and has less wound leakage, but has a bigger bleb. The fornix-based approach is closer to the limbus, technically more complex, has more wound leak, but creates a flatter bleb. Tube shunts are for patients that cannot have a trabeculectomy, such as those with a failed trab, neovascular glaucoma, or uveitis. MIGs shunt aqueous from the AC directly into Schlem's canal or into the suprachoroidal space. And as we just learned, there are many different categories that we can use in our practice. Since this is a two-part episode, I'm going to save my question until the end of next episode. Dr. Ahmed, thank you again for joining us for this episode and for the next episode. We've already learned so much about glaucoma surgery and minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, and I'm sure our listeners are excited for our laser topic. All right, we'll see you there. And thank you to our listeners. See you next time on The Pupil Pod. 